And so we're going to go back to Romans this morning. We're back in Romans chapter 11. I'm going to read verses 7 through 32. 7 through 32. You may remember that last week I spoke about certain of the commentators, and I quoted from several of the commentators, ancient and more modern and current. And Matthew Henry, as a text, chose the whole chapter. Because really, this is a chapter that doesn't really lend itself to little parts because the, the fullness of it is the context of each part. And um, so I'm going to read a, a, a fairly long section this morning and make my comments based on, on that reading. So turn to Romans chapter 11, verse 7. Paul writes, What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded, just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fail, but through their fall rather, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world... What will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand in faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity but toward you goodness if you continue in his goodness otherwise you also will be cut off and they also if they do not continue in unbelief will be grafted in for God is able to graft them in again for if you were cut out of the olive tree which is wild by nature and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted in to their own olive tree? For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in.
and so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion. He'll turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet now have obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they may also obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. O oh, Father, give us pause to reflect with fear and trembling the great blessing and the great warnings in these words. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> you know, sometimes when I go to a passage like this and I see the mood, if you will, or the disposition of the writer, in this case Paul, who for these last three chapters is lamenting the sad defection of the Jews from Christ. He's writing to a Gentile church in Rome, mostly Romans, and I pointed out to you from Acts, um, Acts 19 that um, they were in a time when the Jews were actually expelled from Rome. There weren't any Jews there for a time under Claudius Caesar. And so there weren't many Christians coming in, and he wrote to them as though the church was Gentile. But you can feel the apostle's pain that his countrymen are not coming in. But he does what all of us have to do at some point in our life and walk with God. And that is when we come into a hard place, when we're faced with a hard situation, when we're under great affliction or lamentation or sadness of soul, we have to be able to minister to ourselves to a great degree, we have the word of God. We are competent to counsel ourselves at the very least, if not one another. And so here's Paul, and he's, I picture him this way. He's in a room. By the way, he's in Corinth, and he's not writing this. Paul is pacing back and forth, dictating it to Tertius. And we find that all out at the end of chapter 16. He's dictating it to a secretary named Tertius. Tertius is doing the writing, and Tertius comes out of character and speaks right to us at the end. I, Tertius, am writing this to you. So we find out that Paul has a, uh, someone he's dictating to. And they're in the house of a man named Gaius. And we found out that Gaius is not only their host, as Paul writes the letter, but he's the host of the whole church at Corinth. And it's all revealed at the end. So here's the scene where Paul is in the room with Tertius and Gaius and maybe others. But there's one person that he didn't speak of who's also in that room with them and is the Holy Spirit who's inspiring him to speak as he paces back and forth and laments the sad defection of his countrymen from the gospel of Christ. And he's saddened. And so he's working it out and he's ministering to himself and he receives a great prophecy that at some future date the Israelites will come to Christ en masse. And this has created great controversy. And this goes back to the beginning. 
You can go back to commentators from the fourth century who were debating whether Israel really means Israel here or what does it mean. And we've talked about that as well here. And I want to unravel some of this for us today because I think the context as always will lead us to clarity in understanding the section. And so I gave us a rather big section here. He talks about, in quoting from Isaiah, that God gave them a spirit of stupor. You know, for a time, and we'll talk about this in the message, when you disbelieve God and dishonor him for long enough, right, God can pull away from you, and we've seen that repeatedly throughout the history of the Jews. As you read the Old Testament, I'm amazed that these are God's people, because they're always doing the wrong thing. It's very, very seldom where they all come together and do the right thing, and those are joyous times, but very few times in the 39 books of the Old Covenant. And so even you have David saying, let their table become a snare and a trap. What does that mean? That means the blessings that they have, let them fatten themselves on their blessings and forget the blesser. That's what it means. Let their blessings become a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened. They think they're being blessed and they forgot to be thankful and recognize who it was blessing them. And so Paul himself rails against his own people, not in anger so much, but in sadness, like a parent who sees a child who's turning away from him in an insulting way, and you're angry at him, but you're sad for his soul because he doesn't know the depth of the sin that he's committing before God. And so verses 7 and 8 say this, What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it. Who are the elect? They are all those members of Israel or the Gentile world who received the gospel and were singled out for that purpose before the foundation of the world. This we all know. Now, you're at a disadvantage this morning if you haven't been here for the last year and a half because I started in chapter 1 and I'm bringing us up here contextually. But I'm going to try to, as I do every Sunday, bring a little review back in so we can resituate ourselves again with what this apostle is talking about. The elect have obtained it, but the rest were blinded. So there's two people in the world. There's those who have eyes to see, and there's those who have been blinded by God for a time, for his purpose. And the apostle is so clear here. Far be it for me to deny it. Just as it is written, he says, God has given them a spirit of stupor. God has made them stupid. Eyes that they should not see, ears that they should not hear to this very day. And a key point that must be recognized from this verse is that Paul is speaking about what was for him the present, the present time. This very day refers to the moment where Tertius is taking down the dictation in Gaius's house. He's been teaching about the history and the faithfulness slash faithlessness of God's own people. 
The Jews, friends, the chosen people, the people of God, the Jewish nation, the nation he created in love is Paul's concern at this juncture with the great treatise that is the book of Romans. And if you remember, in prior weeks, we talked about Paul spoke of a remnant in Israel in verse 6. But here, and in later verses, he lets the reader know that there is a believing remnant among the Jewish people. But he's not saying that the true Israel must always remain a mere remnant. He's building up to this prophecy that he makes. One of the most glorious prophecies in the scripture. So he's, not, he's saying there's a remnant in Israel, but it may not always be that way. They may come en masse into the church. So on the contrary, before he's finished with his thought, he will prophesy a future revival in which he says all Israel will be saved. Now, don't be over-literal with certain words like the word all. All doesn't always mean every single person. And if we followed the context, we know that there were two pairs of brothers in chapter 9 where one was saved and the other was not. There was Isaac and Ishmael. There was Jacob and Esau. So all doesn't mean every single person that ever walked the earth. We, we may remember for last, from last week where I went to Deuteronomy 28 and showed that God let everybody, because of unbelief, die in the wilderness from 20 years old and up. He got sick of them. He got sick of their complaining and their mumbling when he was present with them. The Shekinah glory was shining in the camp and they mumbled against God. So we let them die in the wilderness. Dare I say they're not saved? Yes, I dare say it. But Joshua and Caleb gave a good report and did not mumble at the blessing of God, but rejoiced and said, yeah, there, there are some big guys in the land, some giants, but we're the, the Lord's people. We're well able to defeat this army. So Paul speaks of a remnant, but he doesn't say that Israel will always remain a mere remnant. And this statement has caused no end of controversy among the scholars over the centuries, as I've noted. Does it mean all people of the nation? Does it mean the elect Jews? Does it refer to the total number of elect Jews and elect Gentiles? Well, these are the questions that scholars have asked, and we've asked them between ourselves. But it seems to me a plain reading of the passage within the context of Romans 9, 10, and 11 should make the meaning at least accessible to us, the reader. And so he writes, Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it. I suggest to you that Israel seeks something different than what the elect are seeking. It seems clear to me within the context of the statement that the Israel the apostle refers to here is undoubtedly the national country of Israel. Surely Israel as a nation has not obtained what it sought, which is national prominence in the Middle East, in Palestine. A visible favored nation status before God. That's what they sought. And they did not receive it because of unbelief. Your homework tonight is to read the entire Old Testament. 
when you get home. And you'll see that I'm right about that. For surely Israel as a nation has not obtained what it sought. The elect, however, did obtain what they sought. They sought divine exoneration from sin. We wanted to be forgiven from sin. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, all you see is a sinful, miserable mass that needs redemption. So they wanted exoneration from sin. They wanted part of the promise of eternal life with God in eternity. So the elect from both Israel and Gentile nations have obtained what they sought. Peace with God. And we speak of this further. Uh, But such a thing should not be foreign to any New Testament reader. And I'm speaking about the language of blinding. Those who did not obtain it were made blind and deaf to it by an act of God. God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they shall not see, ears that they shall not hear. But such a thing should not be foreign to any New Testament reader because that kind of language is used throughout the gospel narratives. Very famously in the parable of the soils in Matthew 13, verse 14. The references are in your notes. Luke 19.20 says the same thing. God gave them eyes that they should not see, ears that they should not hear. It's a punishment, friends. I told you last week that you're at a disadvantage with regard to the emphasis of today's passage if you have not been apprised of what's gone before in the epistle. So your homework also is going to be a heavy week for you. you got to go back for a year and a half and listen to all the sermons. Most of them are just under an hour, so figure your time properly and you'll come up to date here. But it's as if Paul preached himself into a corner here. He has to deal with the Jewish problem, let's call it. He has to deal with this. And the only way he could work himself free was to speak upon what seemed at first glance God's casting away of his own covenant people. And the apostle is determined to use the well-chronicled history of the Jewish people to demonstrate that nothing could be further from the truth. God's not casting away his people, Israel. And yet we come to a passage that speaks of divine blinding and supernatural deafening of the Jewish people to the truth. They can't hear it. They hear the words, but they can't ascertain the meaning of the words. They certainly can't personalize the gospel for themselves. Those who should have recognized him despised him. If if you've read any of the four gospels, you know that. Those who should have received him rejected him. Those who should have loved him, heard him, defended him, delivered him with regard to the the, um, Barabbas affair... They rather ridiculed and tormented and tortured and then finally crucified him and thought they'd done away with him. And Jesus said very famously, I'm not sure which verse it is, but he said, I'll be back. (laughs) Even after the pagan governor pleaded, imagine this, the pagan governor, Pontius Pilate, is pleading for the man. I'll chastise him and let him go. He's done nothing wrong. 
You read the gospel. He did nothing wrong. And if it was wrong when he did, it certainly didn't deserve death, much less the most excruciating, humiliating death conceivable, Roman torture on a stake. The pagan governor pleads for his release, and the indignant, jealous, exasperated priests of Israel led the rebellion against them. Is it any wonder that somebody got chastised from on high for that? And so Paul begins the passage with the historical record. We've said it a few times. He he retells the story of Elijah. In 1 Kings 19, where Elijah came to the conclusion that for all the world, it seemed as though everyone in Israel had turned against God. And he said, I alone am left. And God corrected him. But you can't, the prophet was wrong, but you can't blame him for being wrong. He looked at Israel. He looked at the, he looked at the government of Israel, Ahab and Jezebel. He looked at the prophets that they served, the prophets of Baal and the Ashtoreth goddesses all throughout the land, hundreds and hundreds. That day at the Mount Carmel, Elijah killed 850 of them by the power of God. The country was full of paganism and false religion. And it seemed that religion was displaced with paganism by those to whom God spoon-fed true and genuine religion. And offered a true and genuine relationship with himself. And those are the ones that turned away. And yet though the prophet could hardly be blamed for his conclusion. And he pleaded with God to punish his own people. But the prophet was wrong. And God corrected him. And so God apprised him that he had kept for himself a faithful remnant. See God's always busy saving even though we're not seeing it at every moment. He kept for himself all those who had not kissed the idols of Baal, not bowed before foreign gods or worshipped at profane altars. And so Paul relates the present to the past and makes the case that though Israel seemed to express wholesale rejection of the Savior, that now in his time, as then in Elijah's time, God has also prepared a remnant. There is a seed, if you will, of Israel from whom many, even the whole nation of Israel, may sprout from with a renewed sense of faith in Christ and a love of the truth. And so Paul goes from being a historian to being a commentator of his own day, in his own time. He was on the talk show circuit. You know, one of the heads that come up on TV and has his opinions. He was a historian And he was a pundit, and from there he moves on to prophecy. He can talk about the past. He can talk about the present, just as we can. It's written, and we can look at it. But we can't do what Paul did. He can talk about the future, because the Holy Spirit came upon him, and he became the greatest prophet. And so he turns to future prognostication, Not just the past. But with the verse that we have here, we have this nagging question. In fact, a number of questions arise from the context of Romans. And that is, as I've noted, that the apostle has preached himself into this corner. Now, what's the corner? 
I would answer to you today by recalling the triumphant notes that Paul hits at the end of Romans chapter 8, where he extols the extent of the blessed assurance of the faithful. He preaches not only salvation in Christ, but assurance of salvation, even, and sometimes most especially, when everything's going wrong. And he says that all who love God and receive his son with joy will persevere undisturbed eternally. And so the great doxology of chapter 8 is ever there to thrill the hearers with unimpeachable assurance that God's grace to the believer will never and can never be frustrated or undone. And so the apostle writes with what we should recognize as soaring rhetoric. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or naked nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're killed all day long. We're accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all things, we're more than conquerors. In other words, when it seems like we're conquered and undone by our tribulations and our present difficulties, we are more than conquerors. When it seems like the conquerors conquered us and killed us daily, as they did in the first century, particularly under Nero, where Christians were made human torches for his garden parties to light the way, literally, bound them up in tar and put them up like sconces in the, in the garden for his guests by the hundreds, maybe even the thousands. Put them in the Colosseum to be torn apart by wild beasts lest they deny Christ. And we have no record of any of them doing so. So he's not talking about we have faith for the good times, don't worry, everyone's getting a blessing. He's saying even when it seems you're not blessed because this is an evil world, you can be assured that in all things you're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded, he writes, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now he says this, he celebrates this, and we tend to close the book there. But what does he say next? What's the very next thing he says when he gets to chapter 9? I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. Right after he said that, he said that. He has grief in his heart because the assurance that he's celebrating is not shared by his beloved Jews. And for the next two chapters, he's going to work this out. He's going to walk back and forth while Tertius is writing and the Holy Spirit's going to come upon him and he's going to minister to Paul to ease this burden of sadness that's in his heart. And so he preaches assurance to all true believers. And as I say, he's preached himself into a corner. Because what does he do? He does what he always does. He anticipates that you're a suspect of what he said. And he anticipates that you're going to ask the question. 
When he says nothing can stand between them and the promises of God for eternal life, nothing in life, nothing in death, but all who love him will come to him and we can rely on his promises and the omnipotent power of his being. And yet, someone's going to ask, if that's the case, then where are the Jews? They were promised all these things. Where are the Jews? How is it that the Jews... The original covenant people perish daily apart from the love of God. Where are the Jews if God's word is so assured, master apostle? And he's, and he's grappling with this. He's preached himself to this place, and he's got to now preach himself out of it. But thankfully, as I say, he's not alone with Tertius. Gaius is bringing them tea and crumpets, but the Holy Spirit has come upon him. And so there's four of them in the room. And so the apostle sets out on a mission to speak to that issue and to exonerate God from any subterfuge with regard to his promise or any unfaithfulness with regard to his mission with his covenant people. Yes, he has punished them. Yes, he left some in the wilderness. Yes, most of them are fallen in the time of Elijah in the 8th century B.C. But there is a remnant. And there is a promise of a future revival in all of Israel. And this is why the apostle has to deal with the Jews and the Jewish nation. He has to. What else could he do? He gave us the soaring rhetoric of assurance And yet some of them are Jews, remember, not many, but some. And they would say, well, where are our fellow Jews that didn't reap the promise, that didn't recognize the Messiah? So the Jews, of all people, seem to be less in God's affection than they expected to be. And let's be honest with the facts of history. The Jews have, at the time of Christ and the apostles, been a diminutive little nation. At best, a, just a diminutive little nation. Since the time of David and Solomon, a thousand years before Christ. That's the history. They haven't reaped the national blessings. Because why? They were conditional. And they didn't behave. <laughs> The only reason they're a nation at the time of Paul with a robust culture of intercessions is that their enemies allow it. Rome allows them to exist. The only reason they still have a temple to worship worship in and to be the center of their religious life is due to the mercy and the beneficence of their pagan overlords that they claim to despise. Friends, remember when they were in uh, captivity in Babylon, and then the kingdom switched, and it was Persia that conquered Babylon, but that didn't free them. Now they're just vassals of Persia. Remember Nehemiah? What did he have to do? He had to go to the pagan king and ask permission to go back and rebuild the wall. Zerubbabel had to go to Darius of Persia. Nehemiah had to go to Artaxerxes of Persia. And the only reason the temple got built again is because their enemies allowed them to do it. Cyrus the Great prophesied the temple of Israel would be rebuilt. No autonomy in Israel. 
So the only reason they still have a temple and they're still doing sacrifices is because the Romans allowed them to do it. They try to keep them quiet. They know they're a headstrong people. They know as well as God does that they're a stiff-necked, what does God call them? Stiff-necked people. And so it's by the mercy of their enemies that they're allowed to exist as a nation and to express their religious belief with relative freedom. That's the history to this point. Is it any wonder then, after so much time, a thousand years, friends, of living under pagan hegemony in the Middle East, they adopt the belief that when the Messiah comes, he'll do away with the Roman curse that was still upon them. You see what they did there? They had all the prophecies, but what did they do? They read in their own biases into the prophecy. And we do it today. And we're going to undo some of it this morning. In fact, they tried to dispel Rome in the centuries immediately before Christ, the great Maccabean period, and they had some notable success, but only for a short time, culminating in a short-lived period of suffering and privation until they were once again vassals of Rome. The Roman armies were just regrouping and dealing with the Middle East last. They had a lot of other battles to fight before they went back and took down the Maccabees. You know, some of the miraculous stories of the oil not ceasing and those kinds of things. And they came into the great fortress at Machairus and found that they, all the Jews had committed suicide. You know the story? I'll tell it to you sometime. And so when the Christ appeared, and he didn't come with this much-heralded army, he wasn't recognized as the Christ. They read their own agenda into the prophecy for a thousand years. Friends, it's called bad teaching. The Christ was and is a great conqueror, but his initial appearance was a mercy mission. Luke 19.10 says that. Conquering would come later, Matthew 24.30. And so this bias... This presumed agenda of conquest that colors our interpretation of Scripture, particularly as it pertains to prophecy, is what always gets the people of God into trouble with history and into trouble with the future. As Yogi Berra once famously said, the future. And I include the present time and the present people of God as well. I see these prophets on TV and they say the, they, they say the, the strangest things. You know, um, they'll, they'll name some current event, um, you know, some event that they, that they don't like and then, they'll, and then they'll say, Jeremiah 13, 4. You know, it's like as though there's some specific thing, you know, um, uh, uh, Joe Biden's dog's been biting the... Uh, the, uh, the agents that were put in his care, uh, Ezekiel fourteen twelve. Uh, you know, they, they do these things. <laughs> and I'm like, that, if that isn't reading your agenda into prophecy, it just amazes me, you know? And so just as historians of the day read their own agenda into the histories of the past, so do the faithful read their biases into the predictions of the future. 
And so let me jump from verses 7 and 8 into verse 25 where Paul leaves the mantle of historian and commentator of the times and turns to prophecy. For Paul and the apostles are very great prophets indeed. Verses 25 and 26. He writes, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. In other words, the future is, portends better things for the Jews than what we're living through right now. Lest you should be wise in what? Your own opinion. Wise in your own opinion. In America, we've exalted opinion to on high, Mount Olympus or somewhere, certainly not heaven. Well, it's my opinion. You have a right to an opinion. You don't have a right to your own facts. Don't be wise in your own opinion. And then he says that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. That's a stupendous prophecy. All Israel will be saved, and it bears our looking into what that might mean. And then he says, of course it will be saved. It's written, the deliverer will come out of Zion. He'll turn away ungodliness from Jacob, which is Israel. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So when he said that of old, their sins hadn't been taken away yet. And when, it, and when they were taken away, they didn't realize that Christ was the sacrifice for their sins. Now there are a few things we should... Um, that we didn't treat from the previous verse that we'll treat here. Number one, blindness is spoken of in verses 7 and 8, and blindness is spoken of here as well. And there are two aspects of this blindness to truth that are specifically stated here, and we're not reading anything to it by saying this. First, the blindness to the truth is from God. And it's a restraining force. It's a punishment for unbelief. And the second is that it's a temporary condition. It happens, he writes, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. The blindness will fizzle away when the Gentiles who are called of God have come into the church in their fullness. And apparently that hasn't happened yet. So persistent rejection of truth beckons God's reaction. You can't just keep saying, I don't want to hear the gospel. Don't talk about that at Christmas anymore at my house. Don't bring any real thanks to God at Thanksgiving at my house. I don't want to hear it. You can only do that so long. And then you're exempt from receiving it. So persistent rejection of truth beckons God's reaction. And so he does the blinding. And we read this. They did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. You only get so long, and we don't know how long that is, for God to beckon you, to come to him. I crucified my son for you, and you're still bickering about foolish things, about your life and your rights and your opinions. Come to me before I close the door, he's saying. Learn from history. From Romans 1. God gave them up to uncleanness. You keep doing that filth, that's going to become your life. And it's a terrible life. 
God gave them up to vile passions. God gave them over to a debased mind. You want to act stupid? I'm going to curse you with stupidity for the rest of your life. This is what he's saying here. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Now, this is our first consideration with regard to the meaning of the verse. There is a tendency in the believer, especially in our day, to presume for ourselves a fairer, more tolerant God than the one that Scripture reveals. And so we try to clean up God's act a little because we don't like that he does the blinding and sends strong delusion and gives people up. We want him to be fair and equitable, God. Sort of a tolerant, woke deity. I accept you as you are. Just come into my house with all of your profanity and your sin. But God doesn't do that. The God of the Bible doesn't, isn't concerned with all this equal access, equitable approach of everyone indiscriminately. God's quite parochial and quite discriminatory. He said... Those came in by the word of God, and what? And the rest were blinded. And so the question comes in, the question comes in, friends, as to the origin of sin. That's always what you have to anticipate when it comes here. Well, how am I held responsible if God caused me to be stubborn or blind or or deaf? And if God does the blinding, if God does the deafening, how can he hold the unbeliever responsible for his belief? Now, we already dealt with this because Paul had to deal with it in Romans chapter 9 when he said, you'll say to me then, why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? And what's the answer you get? Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will the things formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Then he goes off on that whole treatment of the potter and the clay. Shall the clay speak to the potter and say, why did you make me like this? Why didn't you make me a wonderful vase instead of a spittoon? But the, but the clay doesn't get to talk that way to the potter. And if the clay can't talk to the potter, the sinner can't talk to God and tell God he's wrong. So a discussion of the origin of sin is in order. Now the first thing I would say is it may never be suggested that God and sin are in any way compatible. The Bible is is quite um, insistent upon that fact. Sin did not originate with God. We read from 1 John and other such passages of this very fact where it says this is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light And in him is no darkness at all. Sin is not in God. Um, Now this fact gives birth to a number of nagging questions though, doesn't it? The first is this, then where did it come from? God created everything, sins in the world, where did the sin come from? And we know that it came among men through the suggestions of Satan in the garden, right? But how then did the serpent and the devil become sinful? How did sin get in? Want me to tell you how? Well, I don't really know, but I have some (laughs) impressions of how it may have happened. First of all, there's a very troublesome verse from Isaiah 45, 7. Don't go there unless you don't have a King James. If you have a King James, it says, I created evil, God says. It's actually not really a good translation, although it's, 
within the context, it makes sense. But what he's saying is, I created calamity due to your sin, is really what it's saying. So if you know that verse, I put that out there with a clarification. But what we generally do is we go to Isaiah 14, 12 through 15, where we read of the fall of Lucifer, right? Lucifer, the great cherub, the archangel of heaven, right? The leader of the angels in heaven, of whom it is said, how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. You remember those verses? You remember those. He was brought down by a perverse pride that in his own estimation, he imagined that he was like God. And you see, you can't do that. It's being done all over our land today. Very simple example is, I'm not a male, I'm not a female. I'm just something that, in between, that I made up. Because I am my creator. And you must respect my creation. One of James's employees on the job today went to a little convenience store and just paid for, a, I don't know, a drink or something, you know, to get thirsty in the day. And he said to the cashier as he left, thanks, man. I must have said that a million times in my life. Thanks, man. I'm not a man. I'm not a man. I only hope that happens to me. <laughs> I have some things to say. My first thing is, oh, too bad. I mistook you for a man. Apparently you're not. I want you to know I am a man created by God in his image. Where did you come from? So Lucifer was brought down because he dared to imagine that he was equal to God. Now people do that, but it's, it's more perverse that Lucifer did it because Lucifer was looking, had access to the face of God when he did that. I can imagine sort of doing it when you have, you're sort of like in a spiritual stupor about the greatness and, and, and uh, the wondrous nature of God, but I can't imagine when you're in God's presence looking at him and thinking, you know, I'm pretty good too. <clears throat> so he was brought down by this perverse pride that in his own estimation he imagined that he was as high as the most high. Even the thought of such a thing by such a pure celestial being as he, was a self-condemning prophecy. He condemned himself. Now you've got to remember, angels are created differently than us. They're created on a much higher level. They're much greater beings. But they're not as beloved by God. And for some reason that we don't know, God didn't create angels in his image. And Jesus Christ didn't die to redeem angels. When you're an angel and you sin... You're all done. There's no second chance. And so we may say, I, I quite understand that pride cometh before a fall, but still, that doesn't explain the origin of the pride. So let me say to you at the outset that no specific answer is given to that specific inquiry. All right? But I have an illustration for you, as I often do. First, consider this. The nature of such a powerful spiritual creature as the angels is different than ours. It's higher than ours. They're given free will beyond what humans have been granted. We always say we have free will, but it's contained by our nature. Well, so is theirs. But they have a nature that can do a lot more things than ours can. 
They can flit about the universe, and we can't do that. Their glory far exceeds ours. If you ever saw one of these things, I'm not saying I have, I'm just saying I know from Scripture. If you ever saw an angel, everyone that sees one thinks it's Christ and falls on their face before them. They're so angelic. Their actions are far more consequential than ours with regard to the destruction caused by the sin in us that came from them. Again from Isaiah, of those who gazed upon the fallen cherub, we read this. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook the kingdoms? Is this the man? When they see him fallen, they think, this is the man, this is the being that thought he was like God? And so the angels are created pure, free of pride and arrogance and self-righteousness, but nonetheless capable of those things, okay? If they were to stray from the worship and reverence due only to the Most High, then you see the result. They were created to set their eyes upon God, in Him only shall they serve, and Him only shall they worship If such a creature for a mere moment was to take his eyes off the object of his worship and to focus a mere speck of his admiration due only to God upon himself, he would be undone. And that's what we saw. He took his eyes off God that he was created to stare upon for eternity. And he looked as in a mirror at himself and realized God had created him in quite some glory. And so with this nature in mind, consider my illustration. Now for the illustration, we're back on earth. All right? Imagine a man driving along in his car on a sunny day. Ever done that? You got the radio on, your hands out, your elbows on the window, the window's down, it's a beautiful day. And a favorite song comes on the radio and he begins to sing it with all his might. You ever done that? Are you good singers? For a few undisturbed moments, he sees himself as good as the singer. In fact, he's better than the singer. And he's going along, he comes to a red light, and he doesn't realize the cars are pulling up next to him with their windows open. And so he's just singing at the top of his lungs. He persists in this until he realizes that there's a kid next to him in the car filming him with his phone, all right? And then, so suddenly he sees this teenager filming him as he's singing and screeching. And he's busted, and he knows it. So he stops singing, but the teen plays the video back to him. This is a guy at a red light who's saying, Lord, make it go green. Bring me a green light and get me out of here. I thought about it, if it was me, I wouldn't take off fast. I'd just sit there and let everyone just go. You caught me. And so the kid has just enough time to play back the video. And he hears, Why do you build me up, build me up, buttercup? You know, and he hears this vile screeching, I want to know. You know, it, so all he hears is this vile screeching that vaguely resembles the velvety voice of the real artist, right? And his pride and his imagination 
are exposed to him. His limited glory was revealed to himself and to anyone who will receive that video, which is now posted online. That's what happened to Lucifer. A man is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desire and enticed. And sin, and when desire is full grown, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it matures, brings forth death. That's the lesson of Eden. Death came through sin. The capability of it was in the man. And what caused it was disobedience to God. He was capable of sin, but he was not made in sin. So a first consideration with regard to verses such as this is what we ought fearfully to understand from such such passages, that there is a window of repentance that may close sooner than some presume, for we are not all guaranteed a deathbed confession, a la the thief on the cross. You may not get that chance. People say, I understand the gospel very well. I'm going to, I'm going to confess Christ uh, on my deathbed, all right, when I, uh, when I get very sick in my old age. That's when I'm going to do it. And then the bus hits them. There's nothing in Scripture that says God must wait forever for us to bow to him. A second point that is made is that the Jewish blindness is a temporary condition that will abate when the elect Gentiles have been gathered to God. So God imposes blindness. He limits access to himself for a time as a just just punishment for human arrogance. And the time is noted in a general manner. Friends, uh, when you think of prophecy, please think in general and not in detail, and you'll have a lot less trouble with your theology. Prophecy speaks to general events. It's very seldom you get specifics. And I don't, and I don't say never because I can't think of every prophecy offhand. But it seems to me times and seasons are never known. It's unusual for prophecy to give specific times and dates and concurring events. And so it seems to me that the trouble we get into with prophecy is that we fill in the blanks with our hopes and our dreams and our imaginations, not to mention all the bad teaching we've received over the years. We fill in with all those things. There are many verses to this effect. The most notable, Matthew 24, 36, and Acts 1, 7. The Acts verse says this, It is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. You don't know the specifics of the prophecy. So we may presume that no prophet will be able to tell us what we'll have for supper on this date 20 years from now, but prophecy may inform you as to whether you'll be in attendance at the marriage supper of the Lamb sometime in eternity. You see the difference? And so the prediction that all Israel would be saved, I would say this. It points to an unprecedented, unexpected Jewish revival of faith in Christ. It speaks of a time when the Gentiles will fall into the calamity that the Jews were in in Paul's time. And in our time. And the fortunes of Jew and Gentile will be exchanged just as the fortunes of Jew and Gentile were exchanged in Paul's time in favor of the Gentiles. And so a great general event 
at a future undetermined time is being predicted by one of the greatest prophets of God. At some time, a great mass of the Israeli people will turn to Christ. And so we may rely on its fulfillment, but be objective in this. The passage says nothing about Israeli dominance. It says nothing of a reconstituted nation. It doesn't mention the word Palestine, friends. Neither does it relate the event to end times prophecy. I would suggest to you when that happens, it's not right at the end times for different reasons. In fact, it speaks to a stupendous future revival of faith. But elsewhere, when the Savior speaks of the end times, he speaks of a dry and barren era of unbelief when he returns. And so we read, And shall God not avenge his own elect? This is Jesus speaking. Who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he even find faith on the earth? Sounds to me like a prophecy that when Jesus comes back, there's not much faith on the earth. All that I'm willing to say with regard to all Israel being saved is this what a moment for the church. That's when Israel becomes what they always should have become the church. It's a more momentous time for the church than it is for the nation of Israel, according to this. That's Paul's focus of interest here as an extension of the previous two chapters. It's a great moment for the churches of God when the original recipients of his covenant are again blessed with believing in spirit and in truth. For the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth For the Father is seeking such to worship him. And when they come, they will come as any believer comes. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved, Jew or Gentile. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. None of that changes, even when the great prophecy is fulfilled. There's one way to God. It's through belief in Jesus Christ and him crucified. Father, in Jesus' name, increase our access and to these the deep things of God and perfect our approach to your word with right discernment and truth and context from the word of God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.